0: Welcome to the podcast, Neither Free Nor Fair, about election security and democracy in the 21st century. This episode is the Insurrection, Sedition, Coup, Oh My edition. I'm James Long, Associate Professor of Political Science and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington and host of this podcast. I'm joined for today's episode by my colleague, Victor Minaldo. Victor is Professor of Political Science at UW, and he also hosts the forum's other political economy podcast series, we decided to release today's episode as a special crossover for both series. Hi, Victor. Hi, James. So Victor, you've been a guest with me on this podcast a few times before and after the election, including an episode that we did in mid-November, uh, which we call To Coup or Not To Coup. And in that episode, you walked us through what a coup is and isn't, and the historical and comparative evidence to compare to Trump's actions and failure to concede the election since his loss. We said pretty emphatically that no, there isn't and won't be a coup, but we discussed the many things that Trump can still break on his way out of office. And we also talked about what post-transition prosecutions and investigations of Trump and his associates might look like. So Victor, in light of yesterday's events, the insurrection in DC, what Trump is encouraging his supporters to break and the new grounds for impeachment and prosecution potentially along with the naming of Merrick Garland as Biden's new attorney general, I thought we could revisit these topics for this episode. So let's start with a coup. Was yesterday a coup, and do you stand by what we argued in November?
1: It was not a coup, and I do indeed stand by what we argued. Why? It just doesn't satisfy the definition of a coup. I could reiterate what we said, and maybe I should. A coup is a swift and irregular transfer of power, so that's the one thing. Or I guess a coup attempt would be the attempt to do that. Uh, From one executive to another. And so, just right there, prima facie, we have one executive Trump to another executive Trump. It doesn't satisfy the definition of a coup. Perhaps an auto coup, which I can revisit as well. But let me let me (laughs) just
0: start on the on the attempted because a lot of people online yesterday were sort of trying to draw this distinction. Yes, it wasn't successful, but it was an attempt at a coup. Why is this not an attempted coup?
1: Well, again, you replace one executive with another. So that uh, I mean, unless Trump was somehow replacing president-elect Biden. It just doesn't logically satisfy the definition of a coup, perhaps an auto coup, which I'll get to. Okay, yeah, go to that. Yeah, but let me finish with the coup. It's used to install a new leader into office, and moreover, it implies that the perpetrator has the support of the armed forces or powerful factions within the military. Now, I... I don't, I'm not a conspiratorially minded person, so I can't say anything about maybe shadowy forces within the military of the United States that would have supported the insurrection or the mob, uh, but it doesn't seem to satisfy that aspect of a coup either. Now we well, could get into- auto hold, on, hold
0: on one second, one second though, Victor, because one of the points being made online is, is that maybe not the military in this instance, but the it appears, and again, we, we don't have the full facts there yet. and, and there will be a lot of diagnosing and, 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 and uh, examination of this. But it does appear that perhaps the Capitol Police or the DC. police were not exactly doing their jobs. They were not deployed to do their jobs. And you know, there are rumors online that maybe this was some sort of fifth column um, attempt either uh, explicitly to allow these protest these rioters into the capitol. Um, or or just sort of, you know, once it happened, they weren't really, they weren't really willing to put themselves on the line of fire. So what about that aspect of it?
1: I mean, uh, just personally, as a social scientist, I would want to find ways to bias against that hypothesis and make it really hard to adduce evidence that it's true by being very skeptical. So... I would use the scientific method to say, well, if that were the case, what would be a, a logical and therefore empirical implication of that? Well, there would have had to be planning and a conspiracy and a leader and a, uh, not only uh, a, a ringleader, but also um, collusion among different uh, police uh, branches or officers. And unless somebody can produce that kind of evidence, it just seems like this is a conspiracy theory like the ones uh, that President Trump has been peddling. And we could conspiracy theorize all day long, but that doesn't get us anywhere. So uh, unless there's overwhelming dispositive evidence that this is some conspiracy that the police or military are engaged in, in collusion with Trump, because that's important as well. uh, I guess you could have an incidental coup, I've never heard of such a thing, but unless that's, (laughs) Uh, Unless that's happening, this just doesn't satisfy the definition. Uh, uh, And as social scientists, we just, uh, our professional duty is not to entertain conspiracy theories unless we can falsify them.
0: Yeah, and I think the distinction is important. I mean, again, the the facts are still going to come out, but police forces not doing their jobs, police forces being underprepared, even running away from a crowd is different than the police conspiring to help rioters overthrow the government. And so even if, even if we find a lot of evidence that the police didn't do their jobs well, that, that is not analogous to something like a security force being um, working at the behest of an executive official to overthrow the government.
1: Notice what you just said. That's an observationally equivalent explanation that ends up in the same place, but it ha- does not have nefarious motives. And another thing I'd say, here's what I've noticed. Here's a hypothesis. People have for better or worse, latched onto this word coup and are reverse engineering evidence to satisfy the definition. But in fact, what social scientists do, they provide an ex-ante definition and then see if the facts and evidence satisfy it. And so far, just for a coup, the uh, facts and evidence do not satisfy the definition. I could get into auto coups if you'd like. Yeah,
0: let's go to auto coups. So why was this not an auto coup or auto golpe?
1: Auto coups occur when a, an elected executive suspends the legislature and judiciary and or withdraws civil liberties through like martial law or something like that, and or just violates the Constitution, sometimes with the intent of protracting his or her rule, but not necessarily always with that intent. Now, I'll give folks this much that are saying this is an autocoup, perhaps it does appear that President Trump violated his oath of office by stirring a mob into violence. So in that sense, one of the uh, uh, aspects of the definition does seem to be satisfied. Uh, Go ahead. Well, but...
0: Why is it not the case? If you listen to the president's incitement yesterday in 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 the in the rally he gave, and then you look at what the protesters were trying to do, they were trying to stop a constitutional process from proceeding, which is the congressional certification of the electoral college vote. And the reason they were doing that was because they think they're not exactly correct on this, but they think that if they can stop that from happening, Trump doesn't leave office. Right, so that's their intention. Now it wasn't successful, but why was this not an attempted auto coup if the point was to basically overturn the legislature's constitutional role in certifying the vote and keeping Trump in office?
1: I think that gives too much credit to the mob. Now, if there is evidence that this was a concerted attempt with that machinery in mind, then perhaps we're getting into the territory of an attempted auto coup, which was totally inept and competent and destined to fail. So it was completely feckless. But I suppose if this was the theory governing those actors in concert with President Trump, maybe perhaps we are in the realm of an attempted attempted auto coup. But James, think about everything we would have to see for that to be true. Observationally equivalent is that in, in a passionate, emotionally fueled uh, uh, rage full of resentment, conspiratorial thinking, anger, uh, and racism, perhaps, this mob was um, goaded into doing something spontaneous. Is that an attempted autoku? I mean, perhaps, but the problem is it's hard to divine intentions and conspiracy or collusion in that sense, right? So I just think as social scientists, we have to be very conservative, small c with our definitions rather yeah. than stretch them to cover any ground or any uh, 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 action that we don't like or, uh, or, 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 or would like to condemn. I think it's just as... Um, easy to condemn this act, but not necessarily use the word coup. Both things could be true.
0: There's another reason it's not an auto coup. And and this is why I think that even if their intent was to, you know, basically stop congressional approval with the hope of keeping Trump in office, it still doesn't work. Because we actually have already in place constitutional procedures if the Electoral College vote is not certified by Congress. And that is that with the Presidential Succession Act, that the Speaker of the House is inaugurated on January 20th. So if we, let's just assume that every member of Congress were sick and they were in their district and they could not meet in January for whatever reason, there's a pandemic and they're unable to vote uh, remotely and they they never certified the electoral college uh, uh, electors. It doesn't matter. There's already co- constitutional procedures in place. So even if they had prevented it from happening until January 20th, Nancy Pelosi would have been sworn into office on January 20th and then after that, Once Congress has the ability to finally certify the electors at some point, whoever that vice president and president are would be inaugurated. And if that never happens, then the Speaker of the House serves out a full term. So to me, it's just like the myopic view of what this was, even if the intent was there, it still doesn't produce a uh, a coup. It doesn't produce a different seizure of the executive branch of government. Um, by some outside illegal force. There's other ways that our constitution already has to think about what could happen in the instance where Congress is not able to discharge its ministerial duties by certifying the Electoral College vote. Uh,
1: One thing I'll say, so just to play devil's advocate, it could be that we're in uncharted waters. Now let's suppose that the following assumption is correct. Uh, I hate to actually entertain it, but it could be correct. Uh, and I'm coming around to this, that President Trump is delusional and believes his own conspiracy theories, does not understand how the the Constitution works, nor is interested in learning about it, and uh, the mob that supports him uh, that was gathered outside uh, of the Capitol building uh, yesterday, and and many of them who were able to uh, trespass um, and therefore gain entry, that they are of the same mind and they believe these conspiracy theories and that it was possible to somehow stop the election and protract Trump's rule. I mean, if that is their mental model and they're sharing it, in a sense, that allows them to collude in ways that aren't necessarily overt, right? Uh, you, you share this Fauconk theory of the world and you're acting in concert you know, to achieve an outcome that's impossible. I suppose if we're in that world, it is an attempted autocue, so I'll say that much. But now we're actually outside of the realm of vanilla social science here, and we have to maybe reconsider some of our bread and butter uh, uh, terms and, and conceptual frameworks, right? And that's perfectly permissible, but I think it's going to take a little bit more legwork. I don't know what you think about that.
0: Well, I think we don't need to do the legwork. I mean, this is what I was trying to say to people on Twitter, you know, use the word coup or not. It doesn't, I mean, in a sense, it doesn't matter because the United States has other terms and legal definitions that might apply. And we don't have to fit what's going on into this broader, more conceptual understanding of what a coup is to sort of be able to fit, you know, something that happened in Argentina or something that happened in Bangladesh, as well as what happened yesterday. We can focus on how US law defines what happened yesterday. And there, I think the two big words that you know, were used almost right away and that are better concepts to think about are insurrection and sedition. Um, and you can have insurrection and sedition without a coup. And in US law, you know, coup is not mentioned when uh, the statute on insurrection and sedition is, is clarified. So are those terms that we think are, are pretty, we're pretty comfortable using in this instance. And, and do we think that applies?
1: Absolutely. Insurrection is a little bit for me about a concerted organized effort with a leader. And it could very well be that it's an insurrection when it comes to sedition. You shared the code with me yesterday. I was not uh, aware of the code previously. Um, I, I'm not an Americanist, that means I'm not a political scientist that specializes in American politics, nor am I a legal scholar, nor, nor an attorney. So uh, it, it was news to me. Do you have that code available or could you I do. I, I think. It?
0: Yeah, I think it's actually worth reading because it has two parts to it, which I wasn't previously as familiar with. And I think part of it might apply. So I think actually reading it is helpful. So this is from the statute in US law it's conspiracy to commit sedition. If two or more persons in any state or territory or in any place subject to the jurisdiction of the United States conspire to overthrow, put down or to destroy by force the government of the United States or to levy war against them or to oppose by force the authority thereof. Okay, that sounds like a coup, but now listen to the rest of it. Or by force to prevent, hinder or delay the execution of any law of the United States or by force to seize, take, or possess any property of the United States, contrary to the authority thereof, they shall each be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. So I think that second part, their attempt to prevent the Congress executing its ministerial duty to certify the Electoral College, and then the property damage done in the Capitol building, which was illegal, that might actually fit sedition, I think.
1: Right, and notice here how we are in a sense, creating a porous boundary between a concept that's analytic and from social science, which is coups and autocous. And now we're getting into legal terminology and we're trying to figure out whether there's a violation of, of us law. Right. And we're using that technical term sedition. So, I mean, it makes sense that in the fog of war, you know, what's, what's going on these uh, uh, past couple days here, we're grasping for the right uh, uh, concepts, right? So I, I think the conclusion here is not to chastise anybody that wants to use the word coup or autocoup, but where we can add value is to just say there is a tradition in political science to think about these things very systematically, and maybe it just makes sense in order for us to explain the world and Uh, make the world better, you know, to prescribe things after our explanation, to just set very clear markers, right, Uh, and keep these things separate. And right now, informing uh, the concepts we use with the law and and, uh, what's on the books in terms of sedition in the U.S., that seems to make some sense to me. I hope it does to you as well. That's what we're trying to do here together, I think.
0: Yeah. And I think yesterday, you know, I, I did some interviews with media and, and, and a question that keep, was kept being asked was, is this unprecedented? And here's where I think our comparative advantage in doing what you suggest in terms of social scientists is really important. Because I said, if you look at this as purely an objection, you know, a violent riot coming after allegations of election fraud, that feels pretty unprecedented in American history. However, if you look at this as insurrection and sedition, insurrection and sedition have been a part of the American fabric before the United States even existed. Okay, The Whiskey Rebellion happened in, wa- in George Washington's very first term. Obviously, the Civil War happened. So if you look at it from that lens, it's not unprecedented at all. However, if you look at it from the lens of, well, is the United States now like developing democracies where there's a lot of election fraud and then there's post-election protest and violence, I said, actually, no, because, when people protest rigged results in Belarus or in Kenya or in Pakistan, there actually is evidence of fraud. There actually is evidence that something has gone wrong with the process. Now both sides may disagree to the degree or both sides may you know, trade accusations. But to me, what is unprecedented is to have a completely made up violent riot coming after an election to which there is not a single piece of evidence that any malfeasance was conducted, not a single piece. And that to me seems unprecedented.
1: Well, could you discuss the whiskey rebellion a bit? What was that about? I kind of remember from high school, but I'm not absolutely sure. I know it involves spirits, correct? I mean, the, the term whiskey gives it away, but what exactly yeah, was, happened?
0: Yeah, it was, it was actually a tax rebellion in, in based in Pennsylvania. So if you think about it, in Washington's first term, there was still a lot of um, you know, a lot of people who were basically still militia members, soldiers, right, who had fought in the Revolutionary War, and a lot of people still armed. And they viewed the imposition of this tax on, I think it was distilling or brewing, um, you know, they sort of rebelled against the new government, which had rebelled against the king. Um, mm-hmm. And they refused to pay the, they, the tax, but they also violently protested and went after uh, tax officials that tried to collect it. Um, so that's, I think, where the, the insurrection, the sedition part comes in. Um, and then Washington had to send in, I think, militias from Virginia, ultimately, to get these people in Western Pennsylvania to, to stand down. Um, and, but, you know, I mean, these, these things have happened throughout our history. The Civil War is an insurrection. The Civil War is sedition. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so I think from the, the, the perspective of people violently uh, trying to stop the conduct of the U.S. government's execution of its laws and or violently destroying its property. I don't think that's that's unprecedented at
1: all. Right, and, and perhaps, again, this is a default, and we could agree that these terms make sense, both legally and conceptually at this point. Uh, and again, I would be willing to change my mind. Definitions are just tools that human beings use, right? So uh, if for some reason there's evidence that's uncovered that seems to get closer to satisfying the definition of an autoku. Uh, then I would be willing to concede that point. Um, You know, at the end of the day, as social scientists, we always think about, well, how would we code a variable, right? Uh, Would this make it into the parade of data points? There's very few for autokous and democracy. We went through that last time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so for this to be uh, make it into that rarefied category of autokous and democracies, Uh, That would be fine, but I think we would want a a little bit more evidence. As we said in the first podcast a a few months ago, we can think of Hitler in 1933, Uruguay in 1972, Peru in 1992, some argue in 2019, Turkey in 2015, Hungary this year, uh, Bolivia recently in 2019 with uh, Morales when he was exiled to Mexico, and, and Maduro in Venezuela if we're very stringent about what we mean by democracy, there's a few other cases if we stretch the definition of democracy, that's it. So um, in order to really, I don't know, allow uh, this to make it into that uh, uh, category, I think we just need to know more. And perhaps we will know more over the next few days as evidence emerges. So maybe we could kind of like, uh, uh, put this to bed and move on to other topics that are uh, relevant to what happened yesterday?
0: Sure. Well, one of the things, Victor, that we had talked about in November is we said, okay, probably there won't be, this isn't a coup thus far, there probably won't be a coup and or an auto coup. But we did mention that he will still probably try to break a lot of things on his way out the door. President um,
1: Trump, you mean?
0: Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I think at that point, he had already, the Secretary of Defense had resigned and he was, you know, he had fired the election, um, the election security official and things like that. So at that point, you know, that those rumblings were were sort of uh, analogous to how people think coups might start, um, you know, with changes in leadership and the executive branch at the last moment, things like that. But we sort of viewed that as him just trying to break as much stuff on his way out, you know, either to help himself in a, in a post-election environment. Um, at, you know, maybe he's just vindictive. Maybe he's trying to do other favors or there are other things going on um do, do we think that this is you know this is trying to break congress literally trying to break the capitol building it's maybe trying to break the process of the certification although it didn't work but is he breaking things as he leaves
1: well i think it's obvious he is or attempting to not very successfully if anything what happens every time he breaches one of these norms or in fact el- elicits or or, uh, entreats his supporters to break the law or do something nefarious, it seems to uh, reinforce some of the tenets of democracy. In fact, think about the bipartisan, I would say thunderous uh, reaction in, in the Senate at least to some of the objections to the certification in the states. I listened very intently to the speeches delivered uh, by um, members of the Senate from both sides of the aisle, or even including some of the members of the House, uh, um, Congressperson McCarthy, for example, Congressman McCarthy from, I believe, Texas, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, one McCarthy? Of the, yeah, one of the staunch- in California, yeah. California, sorry. One of the staunch supporters of President Trump, uh, and they drew some lines in the sand. So. I was pretty, I felt at least not, if not uh, optimistic, at least relieved that what we see is the backlash. It seems that when it comes to violating the law and, and violence, there is uh, uh, at least a limit to what uh, some of the folks on the right are, are willing to stomach. But, but I, don't, I don't know what that presages for the future, but at least to me, that's a healthy democratic response about the antibodies of our democracy. So yes, he's trying to break stuff on the way out. If anything, I hope this reinforces some of not only our norms, but some of our laws and leads to reform that will strengthen our democratic system.
0: But Victor, let me press back on this, which is you know, McCarthy and McConnell may have gone on the record beforehand to say that they were still going to approve of the the process. I mean, there wasn't anything they could do to stop it. So it kind of didn't matter. And they walked right up to that line, right up to it. And then people like Kali and Ted Cruz still went over the line, even after they came back, they still objected uh, to the Arizona vote and they still dragged it out in Pennsylvania. So even let's just assume Trump, you know, leaves public life for the for the rest of eternity on January 20th. How should we think about the fact that so many in the Republican leadership have utterly debased themselves to him and his supporters? And a Ted Cruz and a Holly, these people are going to run for president, they're going to run for office in the future, and McCarthy and McConnell, you know, they were with, they were with the president a lot more than they were against him. Um, and what does that presage for democracy in the future when a violent extremist party or part of a, a, a violent extremist part of a political party loses, what then happens in the future when it tries to regain power?
1: Well, that's where the electorate is—the last, uh, the buck stops with the electorate, right? And that's where citizens, through organizing, through civic education, through voting, uh, have the last say. And, and I mean, I'm far from an expert on the American Republican Party or even conservative parties, but what I do think happens in the competitive marketplace that are uh, uh, that is democracy and elections. Is that voters will send the message and there'll be feedback. And this is a one term president. They just lost the Senate. They lost two Senate seats that should have been layups in Georgia, where they had political hegemony for decades. So uh, hopefully what happens and what tends to happen across democracies, let's just exclude the United States, is that there is an incentive structure where the voters send messages and there I- uh, there is adjustment by the political parties. Uh, so I mean, I'm hopeful, and maybe this is naivete, that there will be an adjustment that when parties lose, they change leadership, they change their internal uh, operating procedure, uh, they uh, find ways to select better candidates, and they find a way to um, uh, better align with the preferences of the electorate. And if that doesn't happen, they go out of business, they keep losing, or other parties uh, disrupt the the system and rise to the, uh, for, for example, like what happened with Macron and centrism in uh, France a, a few years ago when he won the presidency in 2017. So maybe I'm naive and really this isn't about us prognosticating what's going to happen. But if you think about how democracies work, they are very uh, there are strong incentive structures when it comes to elections to change course. Uh, What is going to happen with Hawley and Cruz in particular? I'm not sure Uh, if I if I had my druthers, they would be impeached uh, or uh, they would uh, lose their elections. We'll see what happens. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, I think a couple of things. I mean, I think if you place this, I mean, I, I know emotions are very high right now, and this is like a hard sort of thing to hear and listen to, and I and I appreciate that. But I think if you look at the the history of sort of the the, the two party system in the United States, when it goes too far to the left or the right or to the Whigs or and the Democrat and Republicans or to the Republicans and the Democrats, however you want to define it, there tends to be a course correction, um, at least at the presidential level, um, and so. You, you know, I know people still think that this is the majority of the Republican Party. I'm not sure that that's true. I still think that they think, you know, going into yesterday, Cruz and Hawley looked very bullish and very strong. However, I think their problem is that they didn't get what they wanted. So now they look feckless. And the worst thing you can do to a party this virulent and extremist, particularly on the right, but probably also on the left, is look like you're incompetent and just look feckless. So you go to war and you lose. Who votes for that guy? You know, I I think if I were a Republican voter who supports Trump right now, I don't want to support Cruz in, in four years. I want to support somebody who's strong and get things done, not somebody who, who, who dances around and makes all these promises and then loses. You know, so I but yeah, I could be wrong. There's a lot of time to recover. And Trump himself could potentially run in 2024. So, Victor, I wanted to have you talk about kind of prosecutions, legal stuff, where we're headed and what you think on that.
1: Sure. Before we we move on to that, I just want to say another thing: not only feckless, but immoral and opportunistic and uh, unpatriotic. And what I hope will happen, and we don't know, is that the Scarlet Letter of Sedition, the as for sedition, will haunt Holly and Cruz going forward. Because if you think of the co-conspiracy, if there was something, whatever we call it, at the top, it was the coordination, if not. Uh, explicit, at least tacit, between Cruz, Hawley, and, and Trump. So I do hope that uh, conservatives of conscience and most Americans see it for what it is. Uh, and not only incompetence, but I- immorality and um, uh, Machiavellian uh, putting party or putting self-interest above a uh, uh, country. So hopefully that will also stick and it will be something... Um, that will uh, uh, help inoculate the country against a a rehash of the disgusting and vile acts that occurred yesterday.
0: So Victor, Trump can legally run for a second term. The only thing that would prevent him from doing that is if he's ever impeached and also convicted by the Senate. Now he was impeached previously last year, he was not convicted. He could again be impeached and convicted on new articles of impeachment. And most legal scholars believe although this has not happened at the presidential level, that a president actually could be impeached after they're out of office and convicted by the new Congress and the Senate for things that they did while they were in office. So what do you think about kind of at a general level where the country sits now with, first of all, impeachment now uh, or the removal of Trump from office and or kind of the simmering rumors of prosecutions that may come down in New York we have the, uh, what appears to be the potential appointment of Merrick Garland to the attorney general's office and the rest of it.
1: Well, here's what I want to do, James. If you don't mind, in terms of the division of labor, I would like to offer a comparative and historical perspective and I allow you to then maybe uh, find a way to, uh, as a foil, offer the idiosyncratic uh, um perspective from the United States what's going on now but I do want to kind of step back and think about well what happens to incumbents when they fear prosecution and how might that inform some of what we've seen uh, uh, occur in the run-up not only to the election but afterwards as well again whether we call it insurrection sedition uh, uh, auto coup what have you does that make sense
0: yeah sure go ahead
1: So I I want to talk about some of the work I've done with Michael Albertus. He's a professor at the University of Chicago on what happens when executives fear prosecution and some of the moves they make at midnight, uh, right before uh, midnight, let's say, before the uh, clock uh, says to them, you're out of time and you must leave power. And a lot of our research is focused on uh, dictators who leave office and might transition or allow a transition to democracy. But we also more generally have lessons about incumbents and their fear of prosecution. So let me start with some examples that are recent. You might think of Qaddafi, uh, Muammar Gaddafi, in Libya in 2011. Uh, There were repeated entreaties by its neighbors and Western powers for Gaddafi to step down peacefully and seek political asylum. Some uh, of the countries that were floated as possibilities were Monaco, Morocco, uh, even uh, Great Britain at some point. Uh, But what ended up happening, he was very reluctant to do so and was toppled by Western uh, intervention, Uh, the United States so-called leading from behind um, with NATO at the uh, forefront of that intervention, Uh, but more importantly killed by his own people. In September of 2011, he was dragged through the uh, streets of Sirte, his hometown in a brutal uh, 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 murder uh, by a mob, in fact. Um, and so the puzzle is, why would Gaddafi uh, not step down peacefully? If ex-post, we know what happened. He was murdered by his own people. And the cost to uh, his country were tens of thousands of casualties in a civil war that is still simmering today. If you think of Syria, Bashar al-Assad resisted similar invitations to seek asylum during the Arab Spring revolts, and he instead decided to double down on a brutal crackdown, right? And he remains in power, but millions, uh, I think north of a million people have lost their life in that civil war. It could be a little bit south of that, but whatever the figure, its it seems like the cost to his country, uh, um, to blood and treasure, and to the possibility that he could have lost the Civil War and been ousted violently, also looms in the background. So the question is, why does this happen? Why do these folks fight to the death? Or why um, do actors like President Trump do both uh, uh, rational and seemingly irrational things in office to fight the inevitable, right? And what uh, Michael and I find, or at least argue, is that there's a fundamental commitment problem that undermine the, the security that an incumbent might feel and therefore incentivize them to relinquish power peacefully. And that's the fact that you might promise that you won't harm them or their interests or their, uh, their followers, let's say the insiders that have uh, supported President Trump since the beginning, that you won't won't harm their uh, interests or transgress their rights. But once they step down, there's every incentive for elected officials to go after them because they can score political points because it's good for their career or simply because they're following the law. And especially after the end of the Cold War in light of the increased prevalence of human rights uh, the salience of this, and prosecutions of former uh, uh, elites like uh, Milosevic in uh, Serbia and other um, former uh, dictators or even uh, democratically elected ex- executives who violated human rights, uh, there are very strong uh, incentives to renege on any promise not to prosecute incumbents. So let me
0: just stop you there so I understand the example. So, so, so Muammar Gaddafi is in Libya. He's given yes. a pro- he's given a promise of asylum if he leaves office by the Libyan government or whoever's involved in this negotiation. Not one only the, op- the
1: government, but but many Western powers and its neighbors. Yeah. Right,
0: exactly. So one of the options is we'll give you asylum in Great Britain. He's afraid to go to Great Britain because he says, well, why wouldn't the prime minister, you know, Prime Minister Blair, or Prime Minister Cameron, or whoever. Arrest me for, and then extradite me for the United States for for the Lockerbie bombing. Or why wouldn't the British arrest me for the Lockerbie bombing since it happened in in Great Britain? And so he's he's nervous. He says that the Great Britain cannot credibly commit to not arrest him in the future, or extradite him to the U.S. Same thing with Monaco. Same thing with Morocco. And or if he stays in Libya, like if they just give him a palace in Libya, whoever the new government in Libya is would still go after him or face political pressures to do so.
1: Absolutely, because the incentives to renege on the deal are very strong, and once Gaddafi relinquishes power, he has no tools to protect himself. He's out there subject to the whims or fancies uh, or, uh, again, the rule of law. Mm -hmm. And if the rule of law commands it, there are very strong prosecutorial incentives and tools to go after him, right? So having power is the ultimate hedge, the ultimate insurance policy against having your head end up on a pike or a, or a stick outside of the palace, right? And so therefore, uh, there is a fundamental commitment problem. And this follows on work by a very famous political scientist, game theorist, Bob Powell and Jim Fearon, that actually discuss how this is not only incumbents, but the groups that support incumbents too. And an outgoing group or a minority group who might anticipate that their power will wane in the future under an altered political arrangement or landscape are better off fighting today to retain political power and autonomy rather than concede to a transition, right? Or concede to a change because after that change, those new political players don't have a credible commitment to respect the outgoing incumbent's rights and interests, nor that of his henchmen or his supporters, right? And so outgoing elites are acutely aware of this. They they understand the incentives these new political players face, that they might renege on this deal or this pact, right? And it dominates their thinking about extrication. In fact, more competent political players, other than President Trump, are able to design new institutions or reform constitutions on their way out or find ways to orchestrate a transition that will protect them after they leave office. And if you think about the military in Egypt, for example, it spent months orchestrating a way for Mubarak to be punished, but for military leaders to go off scot-free. And they manipulated the terms of the transition in their favor to maintain resources and autonomy, right? So uh, not only the fall of Mubarak, the Egypt's military, but Turkey's National Security Council After the transition away from military rule in the 1970s, this happened in Turkey, it happened in Chile, it happened in uh, Burma, otherwise known as Myanmar now, it happened in South Africa, it happened in Tunisia, it happens all the time. So so these are instructive examples for some of the strategic logic, perhaps, of what was happening uh, and continues to happen today under outgoing President Trump
0: right exactly i mean i think this is this is the way to understand what he's doing with his pardon power you know he's he's using yes. the legal means you know you, you know you talked about sort of changing the constitution or changing the law he does in this instance he doesn't technically have to do that he can use something that he already has he can actually stretch it to its limit and then pardon people who he's worried about pardon people who may you know who may um have been implicated in, in things that he did or, or, you know, he just made favor as a way to try to kind of leverage his standing um, after he leaves office. But if he's still on U.S. soil, uh, of course, you know, and there's the Department of Justice goes after him or he goes to the state of New York and the state attorneys general has an indictment to arrest him, he has a real problem.
1: Well, I just want to, as my final salvo here, compare his tools and opportunities to that, let's say, of a dictator who might leave office and transition the country to democratic rule. And that will help us contextualize his options, the chessboard, and what uh, the next moves might be. But let's just think about this for a second. So I mentioned Gaddafi was a, a total failure. Gaddafi ends up being murdered. Mubarak ends up being punished. But the military in Egypt ends up being able to foist Sisi upon the uh, uh, country a few years later. Uh, for example, in Tunisia, the incumbent uh, military officers have not been prosecuted. In Chile, Pinochet dies at the ripe old age, I believe, of 93, 94, without ever being prosecuted. A lot of his uh, insiders in the military also are impervious to prosecution. In Turkey, there have been some convictions, but most of the uh, folks that uh, committed war crimes, let's say, have not been punished. Same for Argentina, even though there have been some prosecutions. So let's think about a dictator. What are the tools they have? They can decide when to transition in the first place. They can decide the timing and pace of the transition. They can have a huge impact on the content of the constitution and the institutions and the key laws that usher in democracy. They control elections in terms of the first elections that inaugurate the democracy and who is allowed to run and how votes are translated into seats. They can offer blanket immunities from prosecution to outgoing regime officials, including themselves, for any crimes or other transgressions. And they can ensure that they will not be prosecuted, imprisoned, killed, or exiled after transferring power by controlling transitional justice, by controlling the courts. And as I said, with institutional design. And this might usher in a democracy under an authoritarian constitution and be a full-fledged democracy that nevertheless protects the outgoing dictator and the supporters, right? And so if this is the case, then you get smooth transitions. Chile in 1989 is a good example under the 1980 Pinochet constitution, where uh, not only Pinochet, but the oligarchs that had supported him under dictatorship since 1973 were protected. Uh, And they are able to foist an institutional architecture on the country that muzzles their foes and empowers their economic allies and preserves in a sense, a lot of the status quo and definitely protects the major players, uh, the military uh, insiders in the cabinet and Pinochet himself. A lot of it was through constitutional engineering that over represents the conservative party, or that gives the military sovereignty over its budget and gives it vetoes in the Senate by having um, appointed uh, military officers in the Senate. I could go on and on about Myanmar. I could go on and on about uh, other countries. But I think this sets the stage for you to maybe talk about Trump and his limited uh, opportunities. And in fact, he might have hemmed himself in after yesterday's uh, debacle.
0: Right. So here's, here's what I think the problem is in comparing to the dictatorship. He can't do any of the things that you just suggested, just listed, other than kind of the pardoning of things. He can't change the law. He can't change the elections. He can't change the Constitution. He can decide where he goes. So he loses all of his protections at 1201 on, on uh, January 20th. He can decide where he goes. He can go to New York, where he potentially faces indictment, or he can go to Florida, where he's a legal resident. And, you know, currently the governor of Florida is a very close ally of his and he could, you know, as long as there aren't federal uh, indictments against him, he could then not be worried about the fact that maybe he faces indictment in New York, but never sets foot in New York again, he lives out his days in Florida. I've always said, to me, the option is more of a kind of Idi Amin situation. Idi Amin was a dictator in Uganda, committed massive human rights violations, and he actually did take the flight out of Entebbe, out of, uh, right? He, he lived out his days in Saudi Arabia. That's where he sought asylum um, because Saudi Arabia, he had a promise from the Saudi government that they weren't gonna extradite him back to Uganda or any other country. I, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that Trump is always nervous about being on US soil unless there's some sort of pardon that he gives himself or blanket amnesty that comes from the Biden administration or other, uh, uh, other legal jurisdictions. But you know he's very he and his family are very friendly with the Saudis, the Emiratis, uh, the government in Bahrain, obviously the government in Russia and China. I think there's a lot of exit options that he could pursue if he if he's he's actually worried about it. Um, and oh. it, it, but, but but that being said, I think he can also do a lot in the next two weeks to try to leverage. I mean, in a weird way, sort of damage as much as he can on the way out, precisely to leverage the amnesty, so that. Um, that 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 protection is provided for him, but that we can all just kind of move on as a country.
1: So do you think those uh, promises are credible and that he'll take them?
0: You you mean if Biden or, you know, if he No, I
1: mean the 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 foreign uh, um, entreaties or the foreign um, uh, opportunities for him to seek exit.
0: You know, it's so unprecedented. Um, (laughs) And I don't know enough about the extradition treaties that any of these countries have with the United States. Um, you know, there are these countries other than Russia and, you know, China, but the UAE um, and Bahrain and Saudi Arabia are actually allies of the United States government in general. We obviously give a lot of aid to military aid to these countries, um, regardless of who's president. But he personally and his family are personally very close to to uh, members of these regimes. So you know if he decided to go to Saudi Arabia and the Saudis promise not to extradite him, does he view that as credible? Well in a way it's an easy out for Biden, right? Because Biden could then say he could basically agree to what the Saudis do and say we actually won't come for him if you take him off of our hands. Um, now maybe that's never seen as credible from Trump maybe he's always worried about you um, uh, the, the, the ability of Americans to come and get him. Of course, he should be worried about the ability of Israelis to come and get him, but he, he and his family are very close to Netanyahu right now, so I wouldn't worry about that in the short term. Um, but it, it's so unprecedented, Victor, I don't know the answer.
1: But well, what about the pardon stuff and the internal stuff he can do?
0: I think he'll, uh, you know, I think he's, whether or not he will and can self-pardon, you know, we have two weeks to see um, and I think he will do as much as he can. I think, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that we don't really know about. I think he, you know, even though the public doesn't get know exactly what he faces in New York or Manhattan, I suspect that he and his lawyers probably have a better idea, um, and you know, I don't know how he views the appointment of Merrick Garland as the attorney general and the DOJ or how he views sort of Biden's taste for this in general, but if I were him, I would be really worried because it's like you said, uh, going back to when you started talking about the Qaddafi example, you know, if you want to get elected the Manhattan DA, if you want to get elected as the attorney general of New York or future governor of New York, you're not going to want to let this slide. Even if the Biden administration, the DOJ let it slide. These local prosecutors that potentially have stuff, they're not going to let it slide politically. It's bad for them, isn't it? So if I were him, I'd be very worried.
1: what about the possibility that he steps down and uh, President Pence pardons him? Is that a dead letter after what happened?
0: you mean what happened yesterday? Yeah. I think had yesterday not happened, that would have been a a very plausible scenario for sure. I think, you know, rumors are already swirling, you know, for, for, for Pence and the cabinet to approve of the 25th amendment to remove Trump from office, the vice president has to agree to that in addition to a majority of cabinet, which is eight out of 15 members. You know, I, people are already kind of talking about this. I think should Pence, Rise to that occasion, or reject a deal like that. I think he would actually leave office very, very popular. Um, if he doesn't, and he continues to be a stooge of the president, then I think he's going to be very unpopular based on what happened yesterday. So I think it's going to be harder for him to do that. That doesn't mean he won't. Um, I think it depends on what he thinks his political his his future career is in politics. Um, but you know, people learn. <laughs> The Republicans learned what happened to Jerry Ford after he pardoned Nixon, right? You know, Jimmy Carter gets wins in 76. So, you know, I don't know. What do you think?
1: That's where uh, all bets are off. I have no idea. I don't understand how to read what's happening, what Pence's incentives are, um, whether this is logistically possible. It seems to me it's not gonna happen because uh, it would just anger Trump supporters who perhaps, Uh, do not condone the violence and are disgusted by what happened. And so why why do that? It doesn't seem like Republicans have incentives to do that. Uh, What they did was enough, perhaps in their eyes, which was to say, uh, although we may have grievances about the election, real or imagined, mostly imagined, uh, we draw the line with violence and what Trump did was uh, uh, um, totally uh, unacceptable and morally repugnant. But uh, it seems to me they just don't have incentives to go more extreme than that. Uh, Even Mitt Romney or some of the, uh, Susan Collins, some of the more centrist or center-right members of the Senate or or other legislatures like that. So uh, I don't know, Uh, does Pence pardon Trump? Does Trump uh, step down and have Pence pardon him? I don't know the answer to that either, Uh, the the self-pardon work, I'd have to be a legal scholar to understand that, Uh, and it seems like it's very, uh, um, a very thorny issue from what I've understood, right, so you and I probably are are just as equipped as John Q. Citizen right now to really ruminate about this, Uh, it's totally unprecedented, right, who knows?
0: It's it's totally unprecedented. And the other thing to remember is Trump and Pence and whoever, you know, is in the they can deal with the federal stuff, but they can't deal with the state and the local stuff. So Trump can't do anything to the Attorney General of New York or the Manhattan DA or, or, or anybody else, even if he's able to do this at a federal level. So he still faces that problem. And Victor, I guess where we could end is I, I sort of have a big picture question, which is not so much Trump and Pence's actions or the Republicans, but let's just say, you know, January 20th comes. Trump and his family are still in the United States. Uh, he, he's left office, Biden has been sworn in. Um, you know, Trump hasn't left the country, maybe he's in Florida. We now see tons of things coming in, in terms of evidence and potential indictments. In your kind of historical comparative understanding, if the old guys stick around and they didn't manage to have a pacted transition that protects them and they didn't manage to leave and the country has not descended into civil war, what does the new government do with these bad actors, particularly if they could potentially run for office again?
1: Well, this is very tricky, right? There's a sharp trade-off here. On the one hand, Trump has a lot of support. Maybe he lost some, I hope a lot yesterday, but he still has a lot of support because there are only two political parties that are viable in this country. So people who are center right and obviously more extreme than that need a home, right? And the Republican Party, for better or worse, is their home. And it probably will be their home in the future. So the question is, what do we do about our fellow citizens? And what do we do about their uh, uh, political preferences, their interests, their loyalty to the Republican Party? And for a lot of them, this cult of personality around President Trump. We're obviously not gonna kill each other in the streets and we shouldn't, and that makes no sense, right? We've gotta live with each other. We gotta figure out a way forward. And we have to find a way, I feel, to domesticate this stuff and to find a way to process it democratically, right? And so then the question is, what do you do about President Trump and about a lot of the uh, people who aided and abetted some of his worst instincts and some of the terrible things he did in office? And my hope is that we find a way to thread the needle so there's reconciliation and there's not vindictiveness. And in a sense, we can forgive the people and find a way to bring them back in the fold. And if that means maybe not going after President Trump, despite the fact that it might create a moral hazard, this is the trade-off, and it might incentivize bad behavior, I think that might be a price we're willing to pay. Because to me, it could be worse, maybe, going after Trump in the message that sends. And it might send a message that, in fact, uh, Trump supporters should fight to the death to, quote, unquote, save their country or whatever they think they're uh, uh, doing, right? Um, Rather than seek democracy, rather than seek a peaceful uh, way to process disagreement and conflict, right? So I don't know what the answer is, but I think that is informing president Biden Biden's thinking on this. He realizes this, and I think he realizes that Trump is not only a symbol, but the leader of this party, although a very wounded leader at this point, right? Uh, now, the moral hazard problem, though, is, well, suppose we take that to its logical conclusion and that we decide just like after uh, President Nixon left power that what makes the most sense for the country, for a democracy, even for the Democratic Party so that it can move on and govern is to um, give Trump a slap on the wrist or to um, not go after him or his family. Uh, then what message that, does that send to the next demagogue or to the next person that is willing to, um, let's say, uh, push the envelope uh, and um, uh, let's say, go up to the limit of the law uh, by, let's, uh, by goading people into uh, uh, things that are illegal, things that violate uh, uh, political norms of democracy. It could be that the next person will be worse, right? Uh, and so that, that there is this fear that that's what might uh, be incentivized, and that might be worse than some of the short-term uh, 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 logic of reconciliation, getting along, finding a way to uh, bring Trump supporters back into the fold and domesticate uh, some of this opposition to President-elect Biden and legitimize his uh, uh, rule. Uh, I would ask you, are you worried about the perverse incentives, uh, the, per- the the bad message it, it would send if Merrick Garland and others decide not to go after Trump for all of the uh, uh, legal transgressions we could pile up uh during his tenure since uh, 2016.
0: well in a weird way i i have come around to thinking about this like a lawyer rather than a political scientist and so let me say what my thinking on this is which is why not leverage what's actually strong about the u.s system which is its rule of law rather than worry about the, the more uh, concerns of political expediency, which is what's happened in all the examples that you mentioned where rule of law is, is either non-existent or not as well firmly established. So so what if Biden does nothing, right? He doesn't have to do anything. If the Manhattan DA has an indictment, let's see the indictment. That's up to the Manhattan DA to figure out. If state attorney general in in New York has something, what, you know, she can go after it or not. If uh, Merrick Garland gets into the DOJ, and the DOJ has has been investigating things. Again, we don't know any of this, but if there's something there, then the DOJ can deal with it the way the DOJ deals with everything, and this process can play itself out. I mean, why, why, why not just? resort to the rule of law and let this be a legal decision and if there are if there is evidence of crimes prosecutors are going to have to see that evidence and then decide if they're going to try to go after it if they don't think there's enough evidence and they're not going to they're not going to win a case they're not going to go after it so why not hold them to the same standard as everybody else and just let the process play itself out isn't that our great strength in this country
1: it is and i agree but by playing it straight rather than exercising extreme forbearance i do worry about i do worry about let's say the conspiratorially minded folks out there that are going to receive the wrong message that this is not about the rule of law but that it's about revenge or even worse some cooked up pretext to punish Trump and his supporters, right? So I think that's why President-elect Biden has to be the statesman he's proven to be so far, right? A centrist, no-nonsense uh, patriot that puts the country first. And I think that has to be the message, not only uh, from the Democrats, but by, uh, from the Republicans as well, and from all citizens of conscience, that the days of uh, trolling and burning and demonizing each other and treating each other as enemies have to be over because that's just going to add more fuel to the fire. And I think um, if we do follow the rule of law, we also have to follow or at least revitalize the norms of uh, democratic decorum of treating each other as uh, uh, – citizens worthy of respect and dignity, of respecting each other's right to conscience and free speech uh, protest, uh, respecting each other's ability to assemble, uh, to speak truth to power, uh, but also uh, expect that we will uh, follow not only the law, but the norms of peaceful contestation of democracy uh, of small L liberalism, right? Hopefully if that happens, some of the uh, uh, this stuff will simmer down. I think that's what's really missing. And that's not a legal thing. That's more about our culture and revitalizing that civic culture. Maybe we never had it. Maybe there has to be a, a refounding myth then because you're very much a realist about this when you look at our history and you say that's never been the case. Yeah. We've, ne- we've never been uh, uh, that way towards each other, right? Uh, tolerant, peaceful, respectful. Well, maybe it's the time to start, right, and turn over a new leaf. What are your thoughts on that? I've well, always said that that's what's missing here.
0: I, I, I mean, I, I I think that's true. I I, I, I I first of all, i we we've never gotten along. We've always disagreed. and but it's we've never looked to a president to be that source of of moral guidance at all. And I don't think it would work with Biden, except for one case. And I think you could look at basically the unanimous vote for George Washington at the founding of the Republic is the exception to that. You know, it's sort of like how Brown v. Board has to be a nine zero decision. It has to be everybody agrees that this is the way we're gonna go. Not everybody agrees that Biden should be president but everybody has to agree to some sort of reconciliation mechanism and it has to be both parties and it has to be everybody involved or else you're just replicating the the divisiveness that you see. And and so I think people rallied around George Washington being the first president, because if if that had been divisive, you can imagine all the threats that were already posed to the Republic being even worse. And we see those threats emerge after he leaves office. We see them right away with Adams and Jefferson. Um, and, And the Republic survived, but I think, you know, even if it's like weekend of Bernies and the guy is like a corpse, if everybody says that they're, you know, this is what they're supporting, I think it has a, a higher likelihood of being successful. I'm very skeptical that that can happen in this climate. I think a president or an attorney general has a lot of influence and power over how rule of law is exercised. I think they have almost no influence over how parts of this country discourse with each other, how they value each other or not. Um, and how they engage in political life I, I i'm sorry to say that but i just think that's true
1: well then if it's a grassroots thing or bottom to top thing then hopefully it starts with regular citizens just being better to each other i mean it sounds really corny but what other option do we have uh, uh and I, and it's about you know to use uh the uh, uh, jesus's teachings you know uh, I hate to get religious about this or theological, but sometimes it might involve turning the other cheek. And if someone's been nasty to us, finding a way not to reciprocate, right? Uh, That's a a big part of the problem as well, the tit for tat escalation. Finding a way to de-escalate seems to me obvious in light of what happened yesterday. A lot of the speeches on the Senate floor, I was heartened by them because I felt that it was, and maybe it'll fade, but I felt there was a spirit of, Uh, of um charity and reciprocity uh and generosity uh by members of of both sides um and maybe it doesn't come from the top maybe it happens at the grassroots and communities it happens uh uh, through uh, uh people of faith and faith communities it happens through uh small business owners it happens through people in unions it happens Uh, through teachers at professors at universities. I don't know what the answer is, but that to me, looking at the history of other countries and what might happen uh, when one group feels like they're threatened or like there's an existential threat to their politics, their culture, I think both sides feel it. In fact, Uh, that to me um, is a better outcome than violence, obviously, and the kind of escalatory rhetoric and actions that we've seen over the last four, if not more years, going back to President Obama. Right. So I don't know what the answer is, but hopefully are there any final thoughts you have from our history, from our culture that could help in terms of grassroots stuff or from the history of other countries? Let's say that transition to democracy, Rwanda, for example.
0: Well, I I look to South Africa always when I think about, you know, particularly on on issues of race in the United States. And, And I look at, you know, South Africa's transition from apartheid starting in 1990 to the election of Nelson Mandela in 1994. And I always, when I teach it, and I teach it in context of the United States and vice versa, I say, this is what reconstruction in the United States was supposed to have been like, but it got sidetracked. And South Africa today has a lot of challenges and it has not been a perfect transition, but it has been significantly better than what happened with the transition um, in, in the South after the Civil War ended. And there, I think, Victor, I'm curious in what you just said, I mean, the thought that I had is in a weird way, you know, so I think in your model, the problem is Democrats are gonna say, well, the first mover here is Republicans have to apologize first. And once they apologize, then we're willing to have a conversation. Of course, Republicans are never gonna apologize. But I'm wondering if Trump losing actually doesn't help the Republicans. Because maybe what that does is it then allows Mitt Romney and now Minority Leader McConnell and the Kevin McCarthy's, maybe not the Ted Cruz's and the Josh Hollies, but the adults in the party, even if you don't like them, it, it gives them cover now that if Biden reaches out to them and says, let's do a national, let's do a truth commission or let's do a healing and reconciliation commission, they now don't have to kowtow to Trump being president and they can kind of engage in that, a process like that, like we've seen in Rwanda, in, in, in truth commission in South Africa, truth commission in Kenya, and they can do so, do so more honestly and actually probably come out of that a lot stronger than they're gonna go into it, which is pretty weak at this point.
1: So in the South African case, what happened at the grassroots, which I feel is the key, because if they feel like they're going to get primaried for not being tough or standing down, then uh, it's a non-starter. So what happened to the culture? Why were people able to rise to the occasion and rather than go after their neighbor, forgive or maybe not forgive, but at least move on?
0: Well, I think it was both elites and it was grassroots. And I think that that was part of the brilliance. You had it you had to have an elite pact, right? You had to have Mandela and Klerk negotiating how the institutions were gonna work. You had to have Desmond Tutu and 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 clergy on board with the with the Reconcil- the Truth and Justice Commission specifically. And then you had to have grassroots people coming and testifying, um, saying the things that they had done wrong, saying the things that had been done wrong to them. Um, and, and so it has to work at both levels. I don't think you can only wait for the grassroots for this to simmer up i also don't think you should you can only leave it to the elites i think people have to work and a lot of this is local too i mean look at the the governor's mansion yesterday in olympia washington was invaded by uh, Trump supporters. So this isn't even just about the White House in Washington, DC. So I, I really think you need both. And like you said, it's gotta be the clergy. It's gotta be the soccer and the rugby stars. It's gotta be all the political parties, all the races. Everybody has to be on board. Nobody can be felt to be excluded. And the people who really did bad things do have to recognize that and they do have to apologize. You know, Members of the apartheid regime had to apologize and it speaks volumes of South Africa's black population and people like Desmond Tutu, that they were able to hear that apology and exercise some level of forgiveness. It's way easier to apologize for doing, having done something wrong. It's a lot harder to forgive someone um, and, uh, when the wrong has been done to you. And they, they, And the truth is, and I think it's true in the United States, black South Africans just had to be better people. They had to be better. They had to be better citizens. They had to be more forgiving. And that's just, that's, that's the enduring crime, but that's true. And the white people had to be good enough to apologize and good enough to not derail the process, but they didn't have to be that much better than that. Um, and, and so I think it's, it's, you know, I'm sorry to say that, but I think that's sort of the situation that we face today here as well.
1: Well, that uh, is something to think about.
0: <laughs> do you have any other i mean do you do you think do you see this potentially happening do you think trump no longer being in office gives cover to people like a romney and a mcconnell to participate in something like this in a healthy and 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 constructive way or do you think they'll even if trump's out of office they'll still be pulled in political directions that don't really allow really allow them to engage in anything that's serious
1: in my wildest fantasy something happened so that mitt romney is the uh leader of the new Republican party. That's what happens. I don't know how we get there, but that's my fantasy world. And we go back to having a center-right and a center-left party that argue about policy, but that agree on the fundamental values and institutions that make this country exceptional. I do believe this is an exceptional country, notwithstanding what happened yesterday. So that's, how, that's what ultimately happens, how we get there, I have no idea. Uh, and this is maybe where sociologists or smarter political scientists uh, can speak, Uh, maybe we could have a series of podcasts about that going forward. I don't know the answer, but that's uh, I I awoke today hoping that that was true. I'm not sure it is, but uh, if we were to somehow get there, uh, my children would inherit a better uh, uh, country uh, and I would be able to sleep better at night. So I don't know.
0: I think that's a hopeful note to end on, hopefully, Uh, uh, Victor. Victor Minaldo, thanks a lot for joining us today, and we will continue to watch these
1: topics as they unfold. Thanks a lot, James. It was a pleasure. It was really fun.
0: Thank you for listening to the Neither Free, No Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Fitchduck, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns please contact udapoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.